Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. My name's Mike. For those that wouldn't have met me here or in Westside, I oversee uh, the discipleship stuff that goes on here. So mostly that's uh, life groups. We meet uh, in life groups every Tuesday and Wednesday during the week where we discuss what has happened in, in the sermon and get a chance to pray for each other and minister to each other. If you're not in a life group, can I encourage you to get into one? They are, they are brilliant. They're great spaces to be encouraged and to encourage others. So I do that as well as overseeing some of uh, what happens in terms of preaching on a Sunday. So it's a, it's a privilege to, to do those things. Uh, and I love that I get to, to preach today to you in a new series that we are starting today called Journeys with Jesus. And the idea behind this series, uh, this series is what we, what we want to do is we want to keep company with Jesus for six weeks. I mean, hopefully longer than that. But uh, in this series, we want to really focus in on what it looks like to walk with Jesus, to see what Jesus saw, to meet the people that Jesus met. What happened? What happened to those people? How were they transformed? Um, what happened in their lives because of them meeting Jesus? And so what we're going to do is we're going to each week take a different episode from the Gospels, and we're going to look through that eyewitness testimony of the Gospels to see who Jesus is and what he does, and we're going to journey with him. Does that make sense? So that, that's the goal for the next few weeks, and, and as the slide will come up now, you'll see some of the talks that are, are coming up, starting with the wilderness today, encounter next week, the road, the garden, the cross, and then the resurrection on Easter Sunday. So it fits really, really neatly, uh, which, which I absolutely love. So think of these, these six weeks as kind of like six episodes in the life of Jesus coming from the Gospels. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to start today by walking with Jesus into the wilderness, walking with Jesus into that moment of his wilderness testing in Matthew chapter 4. And this is really crucial. This is an important moment in all of the different Gospels that we have. In the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all kind of describe very similar things. And if you were to put those three Gospels next to each other, you'd be able to see them almost moving in the same kind of way, which is why they're called the Synoptic Gospels. They're seen together. In each of those Gospels, they all place this story of the testing of Jesus right after his baptism moment. They all describe it in detail. The reason they do that, the gospel writers, is because if we don't get this moment in the ministry of Jesus, we're not going to get Jesus. They're wanting us to pause. They're wanting us to stop. They're wanting us to look just before he begins the launch of his ministry. He goes into the wilderness for a time of testing by the enemy. And so we need to pause here. We need to start with this because the gospel writers want us to see something of Jesus and what is going on here. So what do we find in the wilderness? What happens? It's a sobering standoff between Jesus and a kind of shadowy figure called the devil. Really, it's a clash of opposing kingdoms. It's the kingdom of light and it's the kingdom of darkness coming together in a one-on-one -on -one standoff. And I, I mentioned a moment ago that what we have are eyewitness accounts, but I want you to think about this for a moment. 
if this is an eyewitness retelling of what happened in the wilderness, who is it that saw what happened? If Jesus is alone in the wilderness with the devil, how do we have this account? Jesus himself must have told the disciples that this is what happened. So what we are reading here is a retelling from Jesus himself of his showdown with the devil. So as I'm, as I'm reading this scripture, I want you to hold that in your mind, that this is a description from Jesus' own mouth to the disciples communicated to us. So with that in mind, let, let's jump into the text for today. It's Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles or your phones if you have them. Or you could just read from the screen. Matthew chapter 4. Let's read from verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. That makes a lot of sense. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash a foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him. And suddenly angels came and waited on him. Let's pray before we get into this. Father, just thank you for the privilege of being together this morning. I ask that as we open up your word, as we talk about this moment, this clash between Jesus and the devil, I ask that you would be unearthing things in this room, in our lives, and that you'd be bringing your truth and your victory into these areas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to talk about three things um, today from this, this text. The first is the devil. Second is the tests that the devil gives uh, to Jesus. And the third is the victory of Jesus through these tests. So we'll look at the devil, we're going to look at the tests, and we're going to look at the victory of Jesus. So let, let's start with the devil. Yes, we are really talking about the devil today. Uh, we're talking about the devil in 21st century Europe that might feel like a crazy, crazy thing to do. Some of you may be going, really, today? You know, I, I didn't think I'd be speaking about the devil rolling out of bed today. Well, this, this is what we're doing. It's what we need to do. And that perspective of ambivalence towards talking about the devil is, is really not a perspective that everyone who's alive today in this world shares. It's a perspective of a particular worldview a particular kind of post-Enlightenment European worldview. But the reality is where I come from in South Africa, 
and the travels that I've done across different African countries, whether it's been in East Africa and Uganda or West Africa and Ghana and Nigeria, every time I've been to these countries, there is a, an intrinsic and very clear expectation of a clash of these two realities, of the kingdom of darkness and of the kingdom of light. The spiritual world is as real as the physical world. And there's no separating of those two things. They come together. And so I want to say, if, if you do feel a bit of ambivalence towards this topic or towards the idea of a kind of spiritual realm in which there's a, a kind of evil set of spiritual forces and a good set of spiritual forces, I just want to say, take a little look around the world that we're in today. Are the issues that we face purely down to diplomacy problems and failures? Are they purely down to uh, egomania of particular individuals? Is that all that there is as an explanation for what's going on? I would put it to you that there's something a little deeper. There's a sinister reality behind those evils that drives them. Yes, humans are responsible, responsible for what we do and what we do not do, but behind these actions, behind these evils, is a greater still sinister force and reality. I also want to say to a perspective of ambivalence towards these realities is, is that actually it's a bit culturally narrow to think that the whole world should be beyond uh, these superstitious ideas. In fact, the, most of the world, as I've been saying, does subscribe to reality as laid out in these ways. So we need to be careful uh, not to have some kind of ideological colonialism. I don't know if that's too strong, but I think we need to think about it that way. So it depends. It depends where you come from, and we need to pay attention to the particular worldviews that we have that inform our responses to these things, because there's a danger. There's a danger of leaning too heavily on the one side, of saying everything's the devil's fault, the devil made me do it, and there's a danger of leaning too far on the other side, where the devil can't be responsible for anything. C.S. Lewis puts it really powerful in his book, Screwtape Letters. I've, I've been reading this book recently again. I, I feel like I need to read it every year, to be honest. But this, this is what he says about this danger. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. It's powerful, and we need to notice which side of that space we tend to fall into. And I would say, in the culture that we're in, in this particular city, in this particular country, I think we fall more into the disbelief, dismissal side of that tension. So what this has meant is that the greatest strategy of the enemy has been to cast doubt over his own existence over the last two centuries. He's been able to lead us as a society into disbelief about his existence, which has meant he's been able to operate largely undetected. This won't do. We can't, we can't live like that. So we need to know who this being is. We need to know our enemy. That's the first part of spiritual warfare, is to understand your enemy. So who is this enemy? Well, Matthew calls him the devil, and a little bit later in this text, he calls him the tempter. And this title, the devil, comes from the, the Greek word diabolos, which is where we get our English word diabolical. And so diabolical really just means devil-like, um, devil-shaped. And it means, it's a title meaning the accuser or the slanderer. 
So these aren't proper names or proper nouns. It's not like Michael or Vivian or Julia or Kelsey uh, in Westside. Uh, the devil is a title tied to the kinds of things that he does. He accuses and he slanders. So there's two key things we need to know about this enemy. The first is that he is created. He's not on some equal footing with God, like there's a, a kind of good power and then an equal evil power. Uh, actually, no, the devil is a created angel, angel who has fallen. We don't have a lot of his history recorded in the Bible, but we do know that. We know that he is not equal to God in power or authority. He's not all-knowing, which means he cannot read your thoughts necessarily. He's not all-powerful, and he's not all-present, which means he cannot be at, at multiple places at once. But he has been around for a long, long time, observing human behavior. And so he knows how to, how to put hooks in front of us that grab us. So he's created, and secondly, he is a liar. The choice, the devil's weapon of choice is lies, is lies. In John chapter 8, Jesus is talking about uh, the devil, and he says, the devil is the father of lies, and when he lies, he speaks in his native language. Do you ever think about uh, speaking English, if that's your first language? Do you think about what it is like to say English words to someone else? No, of course you don't, because it's potentially your native language, or at least the language you're speaking mostly in this country. So no, you don't think about it. It comes naturally. When you speak, you just speak. What Jesus is saying about the devil is that when he speaks, he just lies. He just lies. It's his native language, his native tongue. He does not know how to speak truth. And so I'd, I think maybe a helpful way to summarize this, to, to put in, in front of us the, the main strategy of the devil is to put it like this. Someone once said that the devil does not leave fang marks on your flesh, but lies in your heart. The devil does not leave fang marks on your flesh, but lies in your heart. When we think of the demonic, whether it's the devil or evil spirits, we often think about the kind of super demonic moments that are shown to us in movies like The Exodist. The Exodist. <laughs> I've clearly been too involved in the Exodus series. The Exorcist. You know, these, these moments of concentrated demonic activity. But the reality is there's a more ordinary demonic that's operating all of the time around us. And that, the main way that that operates is in bringing deceptive ideas into our lives. And the problem is not so much, as John Mark Comer says in his book, Live No Lies, the problem is not so much that we believe lies, it's that we live them. We live lies all the time. And if the devil, who is a liar, can get us to live lies, essentially he can neutralize our ability in the kingdom of God. He can put us in a corner where we don't feel like we can move. Something doesn't have to be true to be powerful. It just has to be believed. It just has to be believed. The best lies are the ones that sound like truths. The devil is smart enough to know that he, does, he can't lie outright to you. So if he can have, make it have the ring of truth, he can really work with us. And I felt that this week, I, if you're going to preach on spiritual warfare, you need to know that the week leading up to that, that sermon is not going to be an easy week. I, I felt a, 
an age-old lie come up this week that I thought I dealt with, uh, the lie that people don't want me around, that actually the value that I bring is minimal, and it's not recognized and it's not wanted, and actually when they say they want me around, they're just being nice. People don't actually want me around. And that comes from a very, um, a very vulnerable experience I had when I was about 12 years old of rejection, a very big rejection experience that I felt that God deal with time and time again. I've repented, I've prayed, I've gone to all sorts of, you know, sozo type moments where I've let things go and they've been very helpful. And I do feel like I've, I've dealt with it. But this week I just felt the enemy bring it up again and I felt totally thrown. And I wondered what is going on? What is happening? Why, why is this? And I suddenly clicked. I'm preaching on spiritual warfare, and the devil is a liar. He constantly wants to keep us trapped in lies. So I had to work it through. I had to sit and ask the Lord, what is the lie that I'm believing? I had to identify it. I had to repent of it, and then I had to receive God's truth into that space. Julia woke up three times um, this week in the middle of the night choking. That is unusual. That has not normally happened to my wife. And that happened this week. And I actually felt I wouldn't be surprised if there have been a number of people this week who've experienced actually quite difficult sleeping moments and experiences, if that is you. I want to pray for you later. Things happening in the night. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. We have a formidable enemy. We have a formidable enemy. We mustn't underestimate him. We need to be aware and we need to be equipped. We need to be equipped. And so what I want to do is I want to move from talking about the devil to how is it that he tests us? How does he implement these lies? What do we see in the showdown with Jesus in terms of how he works? Is that just making sense? We still still here? Okay, great. So we're going to move to the tests, the tests between Jesus and the devil. Well, firstly, what do we mean by test? More likely, in your translation, the one that you're reading and the one that I'm reading, it actually doesn't say test, right? It says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But actually, that, that's not the best translation of the word, uh, that there is. It doesn't help us as English-speaking people to understand what's really going on here. Does God lead us into temptation? Is that what we're supposed to take from this particular portion of text? Of course not. God doesn't tempt us, and God isn't tempted by evil, James says in James chapter 1, verse 13, and nor does he tempt others with evil. God does not tempt. So there's something else that's going on here that we need to understand about this particular word. Think of it uh, like this. Much better to understand it as being put to the test for the purpose of proving oneself. Being put to the test for the purpose of proving oneself. Every product that we have on our shelves, hopefully in supermarkets, has been tested for the sake of assuring its quality, proving that it can pass the test of quality. That's, I think that's the best sense we need to get from understanding what is meant by test. Jesus is being tested in this sense to prove his faithfulness and his identity as God's son. So what are these tests really about? If Jesus is being tested in this way, what is the purpose of these tests? The key to understanding them is Jesus' three scriptural quotations. 
that come in at different points in each of these tests. These are what anchor our understanding of what is going on. Here's why. All of these scriptural quotations come from Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8. Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8. Where are those chapters? Well, they're in Deuteronomy, but what are they describing about the history of Israel? They are describing Israel's testing moment in the wilderness. Jesus is quoting scriptures in his wilderness testing moment from the testing of, the, of Israel in the wilderness in those chapters. Because this time in Israel's history is about the formation of the nation of Israel. They're learning not to live on bread alone. Think about the manna that's rained down from heaven, the miraculous manna that God's put out. They're learning not to live by, by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. They're learning not to put God to the test in the wilderness. And they're learning to worship God alone instead of the other gods of the surrounding area. This is what God is doing in the people of Israel. Did Israel pass the test? Yes or no? No. They didn't pass the test, right? So what is happening here is Jesus is reliving the story of Israel. 40 days instead of 40 years in the wilderness. Except where they failed, he succeeds. Where they failed, he succeeds. Can you think of another testing moment in the history of Scripture? Where the enemy says, did God really say? The Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve. Did God really say, if you are the Son of God? This other testing moment of the humans in the garden. So what is happening here, the point of these tests, is Jesus showing himself to be true Israel and the true human. True Israel and the true human. He's come to reverse and undo all the moments where we went wrong. He's come to disarm and defeat the enemy where we, we weren't able to do that in our history. He's come to do what we could never do. But these tests are putting him to the test. The enemy has seen this moment before. Someone, a, a nation in the wilderness, vulnerable humans alone in the garden. And he's thinking, maybe I can throw him off. And so he puts three particular tests to him. Tests of power, tests of trust, and tests of revealing his glory. So let's go to that first one. I'm not going to spend too much time on these, but it's really helpful just to position them a little bit and to see how the enemy tests Jesus. So firstly, he tests him to show off his power. Jesus has fasted 40 days. He's famished. He is at his weakest, and this is when the enemy targets him. When you are isolated, when you're stressed, when you're tired, you need to be aware that the enemy is going to try to take advantage of these moments because you are vulnerable. This is what happens to Jesus. And it's attack on what has just been affirmed. Just before this section of Scripture in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has his baptism moment. What happens? The voice comes from the heavens and says, You are my son, my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. What does the enemy come and do? If you are the son of God. He's trying to undermine the very thing that has just been affirmed by pointing out the circumstances that Jesus is in. If you are the Son of God, how come Israel had bread in the wilderness and you don't? You need to solve your own problem if you are the Son of God. Solve your problem. Show off your God-given power. Produce bread. But Jesus responds with the proper context 
of the scripture that more important than having bread is learning to trust in the word of God, to take God at his word. In other words, my circumstances do not define who God is to me. What about the second test? Show off your trust in God, the enemy says. Show off your special relationship that you have with God. These are verses, verses 5 through 7. The enemy takes him up to the top of the holy city, the temple, which is in Jerusalem, and says, throw yourself down if you are the son of God. And notice the tactic change. He notices that Jesus quotes scriptures. He says, well, I'm going to quote scripture too. Jesus says in the first test, it is written. So the enemy says in the second, it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, which is Psalm, chapter, Psalm 91 which is a poem of trust and faith in God. So he quotes God's words, but he twists the intent of the word. The devil knows how to quote scripture too. He knows how to lift them out of their context and make us feel condemned by those particular scriptures. How well do we know our Bible? How well are we able to answer the enemy when he comes to discourage us with twisted scriptures and truths? Jesus recognizes what is going on here and he puts that particular section back in context and resists the enemy. What about test number three? Tries to tempt Jesus to show off his glory. Verses 8 through 10. Here's a total tactic change again. He doesn't open with, if you are the son of God, which the first two tests start with. Here he just comes with an unashamed, bold offer of power. You can be king, Jesus. Okay, you've been anointed king. The baptism moment happened. You've been anointed by God for this time. You can have that, but do it my way. Do it my way. The devil knows if he can get Jesus to do it his way, the battle has already been won. What does Jesus do? He doesn't take the bait where Israel built the calf in the wilderness of the gold, Jesus says, away with you. We need to worship the Lord God alone. And we come to that final moment after this away with you that Jesus says, which is the victory. And we see verse 11, the devil left him. Then the devil left him. Clearly Jesus wins the battle, right? He wins the battle, but this actually isn't the end of the war yet. The devil will come back. Think about the garden moment, garden of Gethsemane. He'll come back and step up his attack in that crucial moment of vulnerability again. Jesus will die on the cross, but Jesus will rise again, of course. So how do we think about this tension? I want to say this and then come in to land. How do we think about this tension of Battle being won, genuine victory in Jesus, but the war not quite being over. We know that this is the case. We live in that tension of victory, but not total victory. Oscar Coleman was a theologian, and he helpfully put it in this way. He talked about the difference between D-Day and V-E Day. You may have heard this being invented uh, for long enough. He said, essentially, D-Day in World War II was the beginning of the end. It's when the war was really won. But skirmishes and battle and the war still continued to go until two months later, VE Day, victory in Europe. This is kind of what we see going on right now. Jesus has dealt the death blow to the enemy. 
The, de- the enemy is in his death throes, but will not be finally defeated until Jesus returns in his second coming. What we need to realize is that the world is not neutral space. It's contested space. There is still an enemy. He's in the throes of death. But imagine an animal that's been mortally wounded. What happens? It's at its most dangerous. So we have the victory, but we are still in contested space. And we're given two weapons that we can use in this contested space. Jesus is, what is Jesus doing? He's praying and he's fasting. He's meditating on scripture. These are both um, ways that we can commune with God and they are weapons for war. So I want us to come into to a close. I, I, I really feel like there's, there's a moment here to, to recognize the schemes of the enemy, the tactics of the enemy, and to recognize the victory that we have in Jesus over the enemy. See, the victory in the desert, it's not just that Jesus is an example of how to fight the enemy. It's that Jesus gets a victory over the enemy that we could never get. We failed in the wilderness. We failed in the garden. Jesus comes in the wilderness and he gets the victory we could not get. So we need to stand in the victory of Jesus. That is where we stand, not waiting for victory on our own, but in his victory. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.